0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. It's like you are asking someone to go out and buy a car and saying, but what you need to do is buy the wheels and the engine and the steering wheel and figure out how to put the car together yourself. And that's what these small companies are trying to do when they're trying to craft a cybersecurity program.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben and I delve into what happened at Supreme Court oral arguments for Gonzales v. Google major Section 230 case. And later in the show, Ben speaks with Melanie Teblinski, senior fellow at American University's Washington College of Law. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash FedCyber. That's aka.ms slash FedCyber. All right, Ben, we are uh, going a little bit uh, off form this week, and we're going to take the—our our, our conversational part of today's show is going to be all about uh, Gonzales v. Google and the Supreme Court oral arguments, which I know you sat next to your computer with a big bucket full of popcorn listening to while the— uh, the oral arguments were being broadcast, right? Yeah. If you'll
2: remember like the longest movie you've ever watched. <laughs> it's like, it, it's it's like
1: of, watching the entire Lord of
2: the Rings uh, trilogy, trilogy yeah. in one sitting. It certainly <laughs> felt like it was that long. I mean, I believe oral arguments lasted something like an hour and 45 minutes, which okay. is unusual. Um, there were three uh, attorneys who argued in front of the Supreme Court uh, mm-hmm. because it's both the parties and then the government took Gonzalez's side and kind of had their own separate argument. But yeah, it was it was definitely a marathon. Um, I did both the transcript and the oral argument hmm. uh, just so I could kind of fully understand it in, in all of my senses, and uh, I got a lot of thoughts. All I got right, a lot well, of thoughts. let's go through it together here. Uh, how do you want to comment this? So just a very quick overview. There are actually two cases that were heard last week. One is Gonzalez v. Google, and the other is Twitter v. Tomna. The Tomna case is more, well, actually, to give some background first, um, just in case you haven't been following these stories, the facts in each of these cases, for legal purposes, are basically identical. It's Hmm. a family who's been affected by terrorism. In the Gonzalez case, this was a young woman who was killed in the 2015 terrorist attacks in Paris. And they are suing social media companies. Uh, So in the Gonzalez case, it's Google, the parent company of YouTube, uh, and in the Tomna case, it's Twitter. The Twitter case turned more on the exactitudes of the anti-terrorism statute exactly try, the justices are trying to discern exactly what the statute means by aiding and abetting terrorists, hmm. which is very interesting, but not as interesting for our purposes, ok? Uh, for our purposes, gonzalez v. google is is really the the uh, marquee show in town because that's getting at the intricacies of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, uh, which deals with immunity for publishers of content. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this is a bill that was drafted in 1996. Uh, It is a bill that predates the era of uh, social media algorithms, although uh, (laughs) some of the oral argument, uh, the justices were contesting whether that was actually the case. Hmm. Uh, But in Gonzalez, the justices are wrestling with how to interpret this provision where uh, companies are given immunity for uh, the content their content moderation decisions on their platforms, how to interpret that in light of modern uh, algorithmic technology. Yeah. So the specific allegation here is that YouTube is recommending videos uh, and that is not simply publishing content. That is the creation, if you will, of YouTube and its parent company, Google. And therefore, uh, Google should not be immune under Section 230. Mm -hmm. And that was essentially the argument of the attorney for Gonzalez. He focused pretty intently on the thumbnails. Uh, So you search Google for an ISIS video, uh, and it's going to recommend content based on the fact that you search for that ISIS video. Right. Uh, And it does that in the form of these thumbnails Uh, which are obviously just little pictures of of the next video with perhaps some accompanying text. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And these taste more likely than not someone making a weird or funny face. Yeah, exactly. They always get the weirdest screenshot uh, in in those thumbnails. The argument of the, the Gonzalez attorney is that these thumbnails are suggestions. Those suggestions are the product of a conscious creative action on the part of YouTube And therefore, they should not be immune under Section 230. Hmm. Tech companies were freaking out about this case, I think for good reason. Uh, Because with the status quo, the immunity extended by Section 230, uh, at least as the lower courts have interpreted it, is quite broad. Unless these companies are explicitly acting as creators, unless it's coming from the mouths of Twitter, from the mouths of YouTube, Mm -hmm. unless they themselves made the video they are immune from lawsuit for whatever else happens on on their platform. And the concern uh, among these big tech companies is that the Supreme Court was going to basically rip Section 230 out by the shreds and say that even an algorithm, a content-neutral algorithm that makes recommendations, that doesn't count as the acts of a simple publisher. That in and of itself is content. Hmm. Uh, And the justices were very skeptical of that argument. And frankly, I think the Gonzalez attorney did a poor job of explaining himself. Hmm. Um, It's really, you can kind of think of the parade of horribles if the simple act of having recommendations and these thumbnails led to liability on behalf of Google. And they made a lot of different analogies to kind of illustrate that point. One of them is a simple search engine Right. Uh, when you type anything into Google, it makes some type of algorithmic decision uh, of t- to determine which results to show first. So, one of the attorneys in the case gave a great example of searching the word football. That's going to bring you different results, whether you're in the United Kingdom or in the United States. Oh, okay. Uh, Because football means something very different overseas than it does here. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they are making recommendations, uh, even though they're not as explicit as, here are some videos that we think you should like. Hmm. Um, But you can see why this would freak out the big tech companies, because basically, this would pull Section 230 out by the roots, unless results were displayed literally randomly or in alphabetical order, they would be making some type of decision as to which content to display. They would potentially be liable for those decisions. Mm-hmm. Now, the attorney for Gonzalez said, well, you know, we might be li- they might be liable, but are people actually going to sue for, you know, the fact that somebody comes up at the top of a search engine? And what I think the justices were arguing is, yes, potentially they could be sued for a whole bunch of reasons, maybe just negligence. Let's say Google decided to sort all of its results in alphabetical order. My last name is Yellen. Uh, I might suffer some economic harm uh, because my you know, my results would never make it to the top of the pile. Right. If I'd that be makes sitting sense. pretty here over on planet Bittner. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you, you are definitely uh, sitting pretty. Right, right. So I think there were actually really intelligent, constructive uh, questions from all of the justices of all ideological stripes, Hmm. uh, kind of questioning where the line should be drawn as to what counts as the creative content on on the part of the platform. And they seemed very skeptical that recommendations uh, for future videos would count as creative content beyond... The normal organizing function of, of a publisher. A publisher, just by the nature of publishing something, is going to have to make some type of organizational decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're a website, you have to choose what's on the homepage of your website. Uh, if you're a search engine, you have to optimize to figure out you know which results should make it to the top. And if companies are held liable for those decisions, then that I think in the words of the big tech companies, is going to break the internet as we know it. Mm. The internet is just going to be flooded with lawsuits uh, (laughs) and it would go against the spirit of the um, Section 230 statute, which was designed to let the internet flourish so that we're not punishing uh, companies for their content moderation decisions. Can I be a little
1: contrarian and and ask the question, why do we think the internet as we know it is is so darn good? (laughs)
2: I. that's a very legitimate question. (laughs) Uh, You know, I think, and this is something the justice has said in the argument, you would still have an internet. It would just be very anodyne. Like, Mm -hmm. it would be very vanilla because people would be so afraid of controversial material being posted on a a platform that would potentially lead to liability. If you're constantly afraid of getting sued, you're not going to do anything remotely controversial. Right. So YouTube, you know, all of its videos would be the most innocuous it would basically be a a children's channel. (laughs) Like nothing that's remotely controversial could be posted on the platform. But would it?
1: I mean, because I mean, there's a difference between posting and surfacing,
2: right? Right. So that's actually a major element of this case. That's kind of a, a catch 22. Neither party is arguing against broad section 230 liability. Uh, Even Gonzalez would admit that immunity exists for the fact that ISIS videos are on the website to begin with. Okay. The question is whether the company should be liable for their recommendations and whether having that thumbnail of video you might like actually counts as a type of recommendation. So it's sort of weird if you step back and think about it that The companies bear no responsibility for the fact that ISIS videos are are on their site, are being uh, posted on their platform, but they do have some type of responsibility simply by saying, you know, oh, you like this one video? Here's a very similar video about the Mm -hmm. same topic. Uh, So certainly I I think that's something that the justices were kind of prying and trying to get to the bottom of. And the Gonzalez attorney didn't really have a, a good answer. So I'm halfway through this argument. I'm thinking, yeah, this Gonzalez guy uh, party seems pretty desperate or or seems like they're in a pretty desperate position. I think they're probably going to lose the case. Okay. Uh, And then the Google attorney comes up, and I think she had some of her own difficulties. So a big question is it doesn't matter that the algorithm is neutral as it relates to content. So it's not like Hmm. Google and YouTube designed an algorithm purposely to highlight ISIS videos. It just seems that way. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It just seems that way to the user. Right. (laughs) Uh, They designed an algorithm that no matter what you search for, they're going to find similar videos that you might find interesting. Yeah. Uh, So the natural next question to the Google attorney is about that hypothetical. Well, what if uh, under their interpretation of Section 230 immunity, what would happen if Google really did design an algorithm specifically to favor videos from ISIS? And the Google attorney answered, we think that Google should have immunity even in those circumstances. Huh. Even if they have jerry-rigged a recommendation to promote content from terrorism because under their views of the four walls of the statute, they didn't create that content. They weren't the ones who created those videos. A third party created those videos. Uh, even though they're the ones promoting it through their algorithm. And I think that just really shocked the conscience of these these justices, who I think were kind of uh, extremely skeptical of extending liability that far. So you have the Gonzalez attorney who really struggled because um, I, I think the justices were worried that too much activity on the part of these platforms would subject them to immunity. And then you have Google coming on, uh, and it's the opposite problem. They think that uh, we might be too permissive of some of the decisions that that these companies are making.. Hmm. So where does all of that leave us? Uh, is the question. It's always very. It is a fool's errand to try to predict the outcome of cases uh, <laughs> on the basis but no, of nothing.
1: Is foolproof to a talented fool. Exactly. <laughs>
2: uh, everybody tries to predict outcomes because of oral arguments. It's it's successful maybe fifty percent of the time. Okay. Sometimes justices are asking questions just to augment their own understanding. They're not revealing their own preferences. Um, But I I think we have a little bit of a hint as to how this might turn out. Hmm. I think what we can rule out is sort of two extreme outcomes that were in consideration prior to this oral argument. One extreme outcome was that Section 230 was basically going going to be rendered moot by a Supreme Court decision. Hmm. So people kind of looked at Justice Thomas had a concurrent suggesting that Section 230 was outdated in a previous case. And there was the thought that this case might be the vehicle where the Supreme Court decides that Section 230 is outdated. It wasn't intended, uh, to protect or, or to immunize a lot of the, uh, decisions that these large platforms are making at all. And therefore Section 230, uh, is, is largely rendered meaningless. And in that case, if they did that, would then, then that gets tossed back to Congress to make a new law? It would. On uh, some of what the justices were arguing, and, and we'll get to that in a second, mm-hmm. is it really, it should be up to Congress to determine what the statute means uh, and exactly what type of activity it protects on, on behalf of these platforms. Okay. But that, in and of itself, is is a difficult proposition because Congress has a hard time doing anything. Right. Uh, and members of Congress disagree on the reasons that they dislike 230. Mm. So it would just be hard uh, to foster any type of meaningful agreement. Okay. So I think the justices, I think we can rule out that outcome where Section 230 is just uh, destroyed with an ax, right? Yeah. The other potential outcome that I think people were worried about is, uh, that I think we we might be able to rule out based on oral arguments is that big tech companies can get away with literally anything. Mm. Uh, there is this concern, and and this kind of reflects the status quo where there really there are no lines, there are no restrictions on any decision that these big tech companies makes as long as they are not the ones creating the content, as long as they're just. Posting the third-party videos, no matter what decisions they make in terms of promoting those videos, in terms of their algorithms, they can per se never be held accountable in a court of law. It seems to me that that formulation uh, is is unlikely to to lead to the conclusion in this case, just because justices seemed very interested in this line drawing exercise and not letting these companies get away with, for example designing an algorithm to promote terrorist content, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so we're I think we're going to land somewhere in the middle. There are a few justices, and this was represented, I think, uh, mostly by Justice Kavanaugh at the decision, who were concerned about the practical effects of cutting away at Section 230. They kind of believe that by destroying 230, you might destroy the Internet as we know it. Mm. Uh, and these are kind of your big business conservatives who are concerned about... Whether the free market of the internet can actually prosper if these companies are furiously concerned about liability right um so I, I think the solution for these justices uh, might be to largely maintain the status quo of of section two thirty mm-hmm. uh, and have it really have a wide shield of liability that perhaps doesn't extend as far as far as um shielding big tech companies for promoting terrorist content through algorithms. And
1: how, how could they do that? What does what the, the Supreme Court have the power to do in terms
2: of enabling that kind of nuance? Well, I mean, they are the ones who are going to potentially draw the line here, and it depends on how they define the provisions of Section 230. hmm What's really interesting to me is there is a textualist argument about Section 230, which really looks at the words in the statutes and what the statute was specifically designed to do. Hmm. The statute was designed so that if companies made content moderation decisions, you know, let's say you're taking certain smut off your website. Right. They want to incentivize those companies to do that. So they don't want to subject companies to liability for not taking other smut off their website because by taking some smut off the website, that's at least a hint to law enforcement or whomever that you have the ability to take other smut off the website. Okay. Uh, And they don't want these big businesses to be put in that position. That's why there is that liability shield. I see. And the textualist argument was really made most acutely by Justice Jackson, the newest justice, uh, who seemed to be saying this whole conversation is is largely out of bounds uh, with the original purpose of the statute, which was about con- was specifically about content moderation decisions. And I think, in her view, Section Two Hundred and Thirty wouldn't cover any of the activity uh, that these companies engage in in terms of recommendations and algorithms because that's outside the original purpose of the statute, which was about taking down third-party content. Hmm. Uh, So she might be the textualist vote um, that that sides with Gonzalez. And then I think there's kind of a murky middle here uh, represented largely by the Chief Justice and then uh, Justice Kagan, who I think... In good faith, we're trying to find where that line is between simply being a publisher uh, and being the type of organization that's promoting certain content through these thumbnails or through these recommendations. Hmm. Uh, And it's possible that they draw the line themselves uh, based on their own reading of the statute. It's possible that they remand the case to a lower court to have some significant factual finding based on the relevant uh, state common law as to where that line should be, or um, they leave the status quo where it is, but kind of push the issue over to Congress, saying it's not our job to to draw that line. Um, but you know we're in, we're in kind of a danger zone, uh, so Congress should really step in and uh, come up to, with some type of equitable conclusion here, so that we know. What, what is simple publishing and what is creative content? Hmm. Uh, so I think we're going to end up somewhere in that murky middle where Justice Jackson is the vote for uh, reading the statute literally and having it only apply to decisions to uh, remove content, third-party content, and then the other justices uh, kind of looking for, for where a, a proper line would be uh, in determining these cases. How did the justices uh, come across in this
1: sort of thing? I mean, was it was it Justice uh, Sotomayor who who joked about
2: uh, that they're not experts on the internet? Good. It was Justice Kagan.
1: Kagan She's got a huge all right. laugh. That's that's
2: right. All right. When, when she said, basically, like, <laughs> look at the nine of us. We're the last people you want to listen to on on the internet.
1: Right. So how did they did uh, to, to what degree
2: did their questions indicate knowledge and competence here? I was pleasantly surprised. Okay. Good. I don't think you have to know—they know the basics. I don't think you have to be an expert in the Internet and cybersecurity and data privacy, whatever, to know the basis of the the legal issues involved here. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think they were actually—all of the justices were asking really probing questions because this is a really difficult issue. Hmm. Uh, And there wasn't a lot of grandstanding. This wasn't an ideological battle about Section 230— You didn't hear complaints from the conservative justices about, you know, we should remove Section 230 liability because these companies are biased against conservatives. I see. You didn't hear questions from the liberal justices about, or to any large extent, uh, about, well, we need to uh, remove Section 230 immunity because not enough of the content on these sites is moderated for misinformation or calls for violence, uh, et cetera. Yeah. It really was a good faith effort to, to work out this really difficult issue where it's hard to know exactly where the line is. Uh, you know, one thing I can say is I don't think the attorney for Gonzalez was able able to properly, uh, able to properly describe what that line should be. I think he did a poor job of doing so, uh, which is why I thought uh, before I got to the second part of the argument that Gonzalez was was doomed in this decision. Um, But I also (laughs) don't think the attorney for Google offered the type of justiciable test that the Supreme Court is ready to adopt because Mm -hmm. I think their argument would lead to too much immunity uh, for some very explicit decisions that... Uh, that these platforms would potentially make. So what's our timeline here? Where do we go next? So this decision, uh, we had oral arguments this week, and the term for the Supreme Court ends at the end of June. My guess is because this is such a complicated case uh, that... This is the type of thing that will come out at the very end of this term. Hmm. So, if I had to pinpoint a, a, a date, I would say the last couple of weeks of June is when we would get a, a decision here. And I'm sure when we get it, you and I will uh, will cover it in great depth. <laughs> we will swing back around. Yep.
1: <laughs> all right. Well, it's interesting stuff for sure. And uh, stay tuned. Right.
2: Yeah. It was. It was really fascinating. I know most people aren't going to uh, listen to all one hour and 45 minutes plus of of the oral argument, but it was illuminating and it really was our Supreme Court at its best. I mean, I think all of the questions were really in good faith. They were teasing out different hypotheticals. Um, There were three mentions of Rice Pilaf, the, uh, food dish I'm not going to explain why there were three mentions of (laughs) rice pilaf in the transcript I'll let you uh, discover that on your own fun Easter egg for our listeners exactly (laughs) okay
1: fair enough Imagine a world where you're always one step ahead of cyber threats, where your defenses are impenetrable because you see what others don't. Welcome to Team Cymru's Threat Intelligence Solutions. With real-time access to the world's largest threat intelligence data ocean, they enable you to turn the tables on attackers. Transform your security from reactive to proactive through accelerated threat hunting and incident response, made possible through automation. Empower your team with visibility and insights to start defending your organization like never before. Team Cymru. Be the hunter, not the hunted. Learn more at team-cymru.com slash cyberwire. That's team-cymru.com slash cyberwire. Ben, you recently uh, had a conversation with Melanie Teplinsky. She is senior fellow at American University's Washington College of Law. Really interesting conversation. Let's have a listen.
0: I got this, my start in the field, my dad and I used to do the cryptogram every weekend in the Washington Post. And I got interested in uh, puzzles and cryptography at a very early age. I think I was eight when I did my first cryptogram. and um, I started reading about the history of cryptography and I learned that it played a very important role during World War II, in particular, William Friedman, uh, who was a mathematician, figured out how to read the Japanese codes that were being used in the Pacific. And he did that without knowing any Japanese. And I thought that was fascinating. So I tried to understand how they did this. And I learned that a predecessor to the National Security Agency um, at the time, had a group of code breakers, all of whom were working to use math to figure out how to break codes. And I was a total math geek. I went through school, loved math, favorite subject all the way through, and I decided this was the job for me. And that's uh, eventually how I landed at NSA at age 16 as an analyst.
2: It's really a fascinating story. And I think uh, probably an unusual origin story for those of us who are interested in cybersecurity. So it, it caught my eye. Before we go further on your biography, though, I do want to talk about this op-ed that you co-wrote in The Hill. It's entitled, We Need a Cybersecurity Paradigm Change. Can we start just very high level? What is the policy problem that you see in the cybersecurity landscape? What's the problem that you're trying to solve with your paradigm shift here?
0: Sure. So this article was trying to address a longstanding problem. It's the private sector's vulnerability to cyber intrusions particularly from well-resourced threat actors, such as China and Russia. China has been, uh, some folks say, stealing us blind. Uh, Russia has also been um, in our networks. And this problem was brought into stark relief uh, by a variety of headline-grabbing cyber incidents over the last few years. Uh, Colonial Pipeline, certainly, um, in 2021 when we all felt the real-world effects of a ransomware attack on our critical infrastructure. DarkSide, the ransomware group uh, that effectuated this this attack, locked Colonial's computers and demanded a ransom to unlock them. And Colonial, which supplies about half of the East Coast's fuel, temporarily shut down its operational technology. Uh, And this resulted, as we all know, in panic buying and fuel shortages, price hikes. So this really highlighted the vulnerability of U.S. critical infrastructure to ransomware attacks.
2: And in terms of your approach to a policy solution, how do you foresee policymakers trying to address the shortage of subject matter expertise uh, in the cybersecurity field in the private sector?
0: Right. So what's been going on with SMEs, these small uh, small and medium enterprises, sized enterprises, Uh, they're basically small businesses. And the problem is that, of course, they are not in a position to defend themselves against these kind of nation-state threats on their own. So there's the colonial attack, the Microsoft Exchange attack, the Solar Winds attack. None of these are the kinds of things that our small and medium-sized businesses can themselves protect against. And um, we've seen this particularly in the defense industrial base, where um, even the Navy's own readiness review, Found that the Navy is hemorrhaging critical data as a result of cyber theft. And so, what we were looking for was a way to address the problem of small companies that are extremely important, whether to our national security because they're in the defense industrial base, or whether they're important to our national innovation base because they're working on emerging and foundational technologies like artificial intelligence or biotech or pharma. And so, our proposal was to try to spur the development of an entire industry of cybersecurity providers that would have expertise and would be able to provide the kinds of services that these SMBs and uh, small and medium-sized businesses and defense industrial-based companies would need in order to protect themselves successfully.
2: So I'm going to come up with an analogy here, and you can tell me if it's way off base. Is this sort of like a cybersecurity first responder? So the way that employees at small and medium-sized businesses don't know, might not know how to perform CPR or might not know how to fight fires or stop intruders. Is it the same sort of vision uh, for the subject matter experts?
0: So I would say, well, first responders are necessary. This is more of a left-of-boom approach, meaning it's before the attack. It's what kinds of cybersecurity protections do we have to have in place in order to protect our companies? Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, so it's almost more the role of an emergency planner, emergency extending what's admittedly a uh, poor metaphor, but like an emergency planner rather than the, the first responder.
0: Exactly, exactly. And it's recognizing uh, in part that right now there are a lot of cybersecurity capabilities available, but there aren't integrated solutions. So it's like you are asking someone to go out and buy a car and saying, But what you need to do is buy the wheels and the engine and the steering wheel and figure out how to put the car together yourself. And that's what these small companies are trying to do when they're trying to craft a cybersecurity program. So our approach has been to say, we need to figure out how to spur the development of integrated solutions that would allow companies to buy what they need.
2: And could you expand a little bit on the role that the zero trust approach has played in the, the issues that you've identified in this new paradigm?
0: Certainly. So the traditional approach to security is perimeter security. And this is a model that's all about keeping the bad guys out of your network. The idea is you post a guard at the entrance to your building, and then once someone is let into the building, they're trusted and they're allowed to go anywhere in the building that they want. And zero trust is essentially an alternative to that traditional model. The idea behind zero trust is that you would, instead of posting just a guard at the gate, you'd post a guard at the entrance to the building and then at every door, hallway, and elevator. And this model assumes that bad guys have breached the network and it takes a deny-by-default approach to protecting the critical assets that are inside our companies.
2: So it's one of the problem areas that most small and medium-sized businesses just don't have the institutional expertise to implement this type of zero-trust approach.
0: Precisely. They lack the expertise. Some some companies are not aware that it's a problem. Those that are aware don't have the time, the resources, or the expertise to go ahead and implement these kinds of programs. Zero Trust is not something you can buy off the shelf. It's not something that you can purchase. You need to develop a program. It takes time and effort and investment.
2: So on that question of investment, Uh, what could you see in terms of state policy changes or federal policy changes that would encourage the development of this new paradigm that you've identified?
0: So what we were proposing in our uh, op-ed was a new paradigm which would be based on transferable investment uh, tax credits. The idea would be that Congress would establish a tax credit for qualified companies that are relying on expert cybersecurity providers. The credits, like any other credit, would reduce your taxes on a dollar-for-dollar basis. Um, So the idea would be, just as in the energy industry, where Congress, Congress relies on energy investment tax credits to incentivize investment in fuel cells, small wind turbines, and these other kinds of technologies that it wants to support, similarly, it would incentivize investment in expert cybersecurity services.
2: That's sort of the carrot approach. Have you at least considered or thought about if investment was not as much of an incentive? From an ideal policy development perspective, have you thought about what a sticks approach might be? And uh, do you think that would be workable? And if not, why not?
0: Certainly. So if you go back to about 2011, 2012, there was a bill called the Lieberman-Collins Bill. And that bill had introduced the concept of mandatory cybersecurity standards in this country, there would have been federal standards that set a floor for for cybersecurity across industries. That bill, despite efforts uh, by that time the Obama administration for passage, including President Obama actually penning a rare op-ed in the Wall Street Journal in support of it, that bill did not go through Congress. It was unsuccessful, and that bill was written in response to the thought that we had a market failure that cybersecurity companies on their own were not. Providing enough cybersecurity protect, to protect against the kinds of threats that we were seeing. Fast forward now, uh, we're expecting uh, imminently, actually, the White House to release the national cyber strategy. And certainly in the strategy, we do expect that there will be a shift. In, in particular, uh, there's going to be a shift we expect away from market reliance in this space and towards some kind of federal regulatory role. So there has been um, already work in the administration. The administration has um, developed some sector-specific requirements applicable in rail transportation, pipeline, post-colonial, et cetera. So there has been work and movement toward a a more federal regulatory approach. But as of yet, we don't have um, congressional legislation that requires federal uh, cybersecurity standards across the board. And even on a sector-specific basis, we only have a handful of requirements.
2: So one of the themes of our podcast is we have a lot of people who call for congressional action. We spoke a lot last year, for example, about data privacy. Uh, there were a series of promising pieces of legislation to establish national data privacy standards. Uh, It seemed that it was really promising, it was on the verge of passing, and then it died in the lame duck session, as many pieces of legislation do. So what would be an effective message to get this type of policy change to the top of the pile, where you can actually effectuate change and not have it get lost in the morass of a polarized and and dysfunctional Congress?
0: Right. So one of the interesting things uh, this week was certainly we saw in the news that China was flying a surveillance spy balloon above the United States, and in the community uh, of which I'm a part, the reaction was: Why is everyone getting so exercised about this? When in fact, China's been? all your kids
2: are on TikTok, yeah,
0: exactly, right? There's been a a um, long campaign of rampant cyber espionage against the United States, and so I think right now. There's an increasing understanding that this rampant espionage really reflects the understanding that economic power is key to national power. And you're seeing authoritarian governments like China using their intelligence services to support their privately owned companies because they view those companies as an extension of the Chinese state. So as the administration shifts in its um, international relations to a greater understanding of uh, what folks are referring to as the great power competition with China, I think there will be more of a push to try to solve these problems. And our uh, proposal to um, implement a, an incentive uh, an incentive system, a, a yeah, cybersecurity investment tax credit, for purposes of um, encouraging companies to, uh, particularly defense industrial-based companies, to try to up their cybersecurity game, I think those proposals will become much more attractive uh, given the administration's current goals.
1: What did
2: you think, Dave? (laughs) I love when I get to ask you that question. I
1: know, right? I'm, I'm usually the one asking you. Uh, I thought it was really interesting, and um, you know, I love my analogies, just like you do and part of in the early part of this conversation, you were kind of you know st- straining to find a good analogy um, and I was as as I was listening along, I was doing the same thing. I was thinking like, could it be the Army Corps of Engineers? you know um, I was thinking uh, because she, um, Melanie said you want to be left of boom, you want to be preventative, not
2: uh, you know. A reparative, I guess. Right, but, which um, is why she rejected my firefighters metaphor. I think with good reason.
1: Well, so I was thinking, like, is this could it could the argument be you have a water treatment plant, so you don't need so big a hospital?
2: Mm, I right? see. So the preventative, yeah, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the preventative action is cleaning up the water so that people aren't dying of dysentery.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That sort of thing. But I, I, it, I mean that aside, I think the, the the point is well made that um, particularly our small and medium-sized businesses are kind of on their own in a way here. And and I really do see the utility of having support for them. Uh, oh, I would love to see this happen in a way that they don't have to think about it. Right. Kind of like the way we, we generally don't think about the safety of our water. Right. You know, we don't
2: think about... Uh, um, National defense, you know, like we, these things happen. You just trust that somebody else out there is taking care of it. And we don't yet have that in the cyber world. Correct. I hope we get there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it'll be interesting to see because so much of the available defense so far has come from the private sector. And so in, in cyber. So can you envision a national, um, anti-virus tool or something, you know, something publicly available, something for the public good? Um, Or would the government simply provide funding to provide people who cannot afford one, you know, a a private solution at no cost to them? Right. Which are both, you know, there's viable ways of coming at this.
2: Uh, Adds new meaning to a public defender, right? There you (laughs) go. (laughs) The government, uh, if you can't afford cyber insurance, the government will appoint one for you. Watch your head as we uh, get you into this police car. Yeah. Right. Right.
1: Oh, I. But I mean, there's. You could see there being um, some sort of regulatory framework where if you are an ISP, if you're providing internet to people, you must, in the same way that you you must provide, if you're providing water or any beverage or any food stuff to people, you have to meet certain standards. And so, could there be a regulatory uh, framework where if you're an ISP, you have to meet a certain standard? Of security for your right. and it's not merely the free market determining that, but that it is you know put in place by the government. Yeah. It's an interesting thing to ponder. Yeah. So all right. Well, our thanks to Melanie Deplinski for joining us. Again, she is a senior fellow at American University's Washington College of Law, and we do appreciate her taking the time for us. With Splunk, you can react quickly, evolve faster, and be ready for anything. Stay ahead of disruptions. Learn more at splunk.com slash resilience. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The caveat podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie.
2: I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.